Ah, how much do I love Paul O? The answer is a very, very, very large amount. Uh, hi, I'm Zach Chase, and welcome to episode 17 of Learning Grounds, in which I get to sit down with the aforementioned Paul O of the National Writing Project. We sat down a couple of weeks ago at the Digital Media and Learning Conference put on the, by the MacArthur Foundation, and we talked about some projects Paul is working on in Oakland, where he's talking with students about democratic education, what they want schools to look like, how they can make the schools look like that. Uh, it is an optimistic and, uh, I, I dare say, pragmatic conversation about what those things mean. We talked about student voice. We talked about what that means to give student voice or whether it's inherent. Really, really fascinating. Uh, good conversation about practice, I think, as well. If you want to find Paul on the Twitters, it's at P-O-H, and I recommend that you do because he is one of the most caring, thoughtful people I know in education, and I'm going to go ahead and say in general as well. So, uh, as always, this is designed to be a cup of coffee long, although I will admit we were drinking beer at the time, uh, but if you have a cup, sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of Learning Grounds. Hi, Paulo. Hey, Zach Chase. Good to be here in Chicago with you. That's nice. I like that we're speaking like robots. That works really nicely. <laughs> um, yeah, we're at DML, looking over the dreary Chicago River and skyline. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, so you've never heard my podcast, so let me tell you what we do. That'd I'm going to ask great. you what you're learning, and then we'll have a conversation, and uh, we'll see where it goes from there. That sounds fantastic. It's, it's pretty technical. <laughs> we can keep up with those things. Um, so, but first, before I ask you what you're learning, what is your technical job title? What is it? Yeah. Who are you officially? Yeah, exactly. Unofficially, I know there's several things. <laughs> exactly. So officially, I am a senior program associate with the National Writing Project. I'm based in Berkeley, California, and I um, do a lot of work in our digital media, digital literacy field, essentially, or our arena, I should say. And, and what are you learning? So I would say the, do you, so do you mean here at DML or do you mean like in my life in general? I mean it is a large or small question, wherever okay. you want to go with that. Cool. Well, I think the thing that has been the most, uh, the, the most energizing for me in terms of what I've been learning is, um, has been our work in the Oakland Unified School District. We're partnering with OUSD, uh, we're partnering with the Center, I mean, I'm sorry, the Civic Engagement Research Group out of Mills College, and we're doing some work related to civic engagement in the Oakland Public Schools. And, um, and that work is uh, just really gratifying in a lot of ways. It's, it's allowed me to be back in the schools, uh, which has not always been so much the case in my work. You know, I, we're a professional development organization, so I'm often, uh, you know, virtually connecting with other teachers. Right. Um, so there's like a, a level of, of separation between you and the kids. Exactly, exactly. And as well, I think I had, um, I mean, I, how, how to say this, you know, I think, I think so often we can, um, th those of us who are engaged in uh, connecting online through, uh, the, through the Twitters, through social media, uh, I think it can become at times a... Um, uh, I, I guess the, the word often used is um, uh, a filter bubble. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if, if, if that's what I'm trying to get at as much as it is that uh, I think we can believe that, that, that techn technological solutions really can create um, change in ways that I think are, for me, made much more complicated by actually being in schools in urban situations like in Oakland, California. Would you, would you talk about it as like a level of abstraction of the problem? 
like we talk about it in like we can make things better mm -hmm. you know or we could improve schools yeah uh, but we don't necessarily see a specific school when we say that or we don't necessarily think about a specific set of students I think that might be it I think it's also there there are a couple of pieces to it I mean I think on I think it's that level of abstraction as you're describing I think it's also uh, a belief whether it's um, made explicit or not, but I think there at times I sense that there's a belief that the technology itself is inherently democratic uh -huh. um, and inherently an equalizer. And I feel like that can, at least for me, I just want to speak for myself, I think can make me um, somewhat complacent in a way and not really understand that actually there's a lot of work that it takes. You got to do something. <laughs> you got to do something to, to actually close what feels to me like these um, growing gaps of inequity and, um, you know, uh, this, uh, you know, uh, a, a gap when it comes to access, a gap right. when it comes to resources, um, and, and even as we, so for instance, the other day I was uh, involved in some maker work, and, um, or perhaps was, this was during the, the keynote by Ethan Zuckerman, but this belief that um, those who are engaging in uh, the use of technology, um, because they, uh, in situations where you know there are kids in highly resourced schools, uh, though uh, they may be actually um, well, let me let me backtrack and say that I think what could be happening is that gaps could be widening in terms of like the implementation of technology in different school situations. Mm -hmm. So under resourced schools, even as they engage in you know the use of technology, uh, they may have access to you know, older technology, right. or they may have, you know, sort of more limited access in a way, um, you know, and, and I think uh, the maker movement is an interesting movement as well, because um, apparently uh, the demographics of those involved in the maker movement, you know, tend, tend to be, um, you know, uh, more affluent um, youth, more affluent families. Right, um, and, and I, yesterday we were talking about this a little yeah, bit, and my yeah. point was, well, when you're poor, you just make stuff because you need this stuff. Exactly. Um, and the maker movement is kind of like, what could I fiddle with today? Right, right exactly. Um, and that it's interesting, like, oh, that's not what we call it where I'm from. Right, you know, like, right. And, and I grew up in a, a rural, uh, you know, rural location, and, and it was a lot of like, oh, we got to fix that thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And not like, ooh, what could we add to this? Right, exactly. Um, which is not to downplay the maker movement. Not at all. Just to, to make sure that the maker movement is also not downplaying what people have been doing anyway yeah. as part of getting by. Or that, you know, we all, as we engage in, you know, whether it's the maker movement or the use of uh, new media, that, you know, we're just cognizant of the, um, you know, we're, we're just conscious of the, the inequities that exist and that, you know, we actively work to address those inequities mm -hmm. um, in ways that I think are not just simply making assumptions about, you know, what technologies uh, you know what technology itself might do, right? And, and in a way that we don't do with more tangible tools, mm -hmm. right? Like if you had a full uh, automotive toolkit, you wouldn't just be like, "Well, now I've got it, so my car will run really well." Mm -hmm. You know, right. it wouldn't. Exactly. You wouldn't just possess the tools and expect that having those tools makes it. And like check in on it every once in a while and be like, exactly. "Yep, tools are all still there <laughs> and really clean." Right. Done. Right. Um, somehow with the intangible tools often right. digital intangibles yeah uh, I think we assume like well you you could you could pick that wrench up whenever you wanted 
Exactly. So clearly you are. Exactly. Um, yeah, and, and I would say that um, the, the other piece to this in terms of doing work in Oakland that has been really interesting is that um, this particular project looks at this idea and I think really interrogates this question of, well, what, what is civic engagement? What does it mean to be civically engaged? And that was going to be my question because it's hacking, I think, is about done. Like, we're about done with hacking things and hacking fell like on the heels of innovation, right? We were innovating everything. Mm -hmm. Now we're hacking everything. I, I, I would be sad if hacking ended because I have yet to hack everything I want to hack. Sure, but you'll call it something. I mean, you'll still do the thing, right? Maybe you will go back to innovating. And look, That's I've innovated true. everything <laughs> that I didn't get a chance to hack. Yeah. Um, and I think Civic is just listening to what's going on here at DML is our next big buzzword. Yeah. Um, and I'm down with that for the good that it will do before it gets kind of co-opted by sure. evil dark forces. Right. <laughs> um, but what do you when you say we're working with Oakland schools on civic engagement? What sure. is that? Yeah. Mean? Yeah. Well, so I feel really fortunate to be working with um, Joe Kahn and Ellen Middaw. They are with the um, Civic Engagement Research Group out of Mills College. Okay. And Joe is, uh, I would say, Joe and Ellen both are, are leaders in terms of thinking about this question of, well, what does it mean to be civically engaged uh, for youth? Um, and I, so I guess the, the way that I understand um, Joe and Ellen's position on this, which I agree with, is that, uh, you know, we can see work that happens in communities um, all the time. You know, like the service learning is a, a big part of, you know, many school programs. Um, you know, kids can engage in all kinds of work that happens in the community. Um, and is that civic engagement? I think the thing that uh, Joe and Ellen have really made me begin to understand is that if, if there isn't an understanding of the underlying systemic reasons why there is a need for this activism, then, um, then it, it may be a more surface level kind of action that's happening. So in Oakland, what we're trying to do is figure out ways that you know, we can provide this um, deeper um, texture, I think, to, uh, to civic engagement so that there's um, civic education opportunities connected to the civic engagement um, opportunities that we bring in community partners who can help youth, um, but that very much, you know, the work is rooted in what's happening in schools as well. You know, that, that teachers begin to think about, um, I think, in some ways, uh, I don't know if modernizing is the right word, but thinking about civic education and making it more relevant to, uh, you know, the lives of youths today. So. Given what you just said, mm -hmm. I could see walking away with it like, oh, the definition of civic engagement could include registering at the DMV. Is that civic engagement? Yeah, I would say so. Um, it because it, it just seems like there's a pretty big tent that, that yeah. everything that is in, like your civic engagement is the people engaged. Yes, right. Yes. Like that's yes. So that's so huge. I would say I would say that's the big tent definition, and then. The um, so, but but I think that actually what we want to do is narrow that definition, and in some senses marry um, civic education with civic engagement. And what are like what would be a piece of civic education? Like so, what, yes. what, what would I have in this right. as a student? Well, so yeah, so the example that I give, and again, I don't know if Joe and Ellen would sanction this example. This is the Paul O example. Those are my engagement. favorite examples. Thank of you, Paul thank o you, examples. thank you. 
Yes, the, uh, you may fi find my uh, body floating in the Chicago River after this. Fantastic. However, yes, I will move forward. It'll be a fun story. Thank you. To tell my grandchildren. Great. The podcast that killed Paul O. Exactly. Excellent. I was this last known digital <laughs> recording. Yeah. So, you know, when I was a kid, and I, granted, I'm old, but when I was yeah, a kid. Just I don't, ancient. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if this is true for uh, any of your listeners, true for you, but when I was a kid, for for Halloween, we would get these little um, cardboard boxes mm -hmm. and we would collect money for UNICEF, mm -hmm. right? And we collected that money because we thought uh, and we're told that, you know, there are poor people in Africa mm -hmm. and we're going to collect this money for poor people in Africa to give them money. So one could argue that that is civic engagement. Um, you know, I would argue that that's a form of activism that is not necessarily informed by civic education. Okay. Civic education uh, in that same scenario would be um, providing youth uh, at, uh, ways, opportunities to understand, well, what are the systemic reasons why there are inequities in terms of wealth in, okay. um, in say, Africa versus, um, you know, say, the United States. Or and Oakland, right? Or I mean, Oakland, exactly. Bringing it more local. Exactly, exactly. So, so are you seeing it as civic education um, kind of writ large at the global level, or are you no, saying no, like, no? It's just simply understanding, you know, what what are the forces at work that mm -hmm. cause X, Y, or Z to be true, okay. and then what is the action that we're going to take as a result of that knowledge? Okay. So, so that's how I would differentiate, um, you know, just simply activism versus civic engagement, mm -hmm. uh, powered by civic education, civic knowledge. And it, so, it, a piece for me sounds like. Civic engagement is not, here's my problem with society, and it's not, here's your problem with society, plural or singular, but maybe here is the our, it's, it's a focus on the us. Yeah, of, I, th I think, I think that civic? that's, I, so, and again, I would say also that um, there's, there's a continuum here as well, so uh, youth may initially engage in some way that, you know, could be thought of as, um, you know, Ethan Zuckerman earlier in his keynote talked about thin versus thick. You know, it may be a thin kind of engagement. It may be something that uh, seems more um, on the surface, um, but that that might build towards something that is thicker or something that has, you know, deeper or more significant meaning. And there's a catalyzing experience as And well. it could be a catalyzing right. experience. So maybe I need the abstract and then I can get more down to the concrete. Yes, exactly. I can't necessarily see exactly. it right away. Yeah, and I would say that I think, you know, when you brought this back to, like, well, what is happening in Oakland? I mean, I think that that is really a big part of, you know, this grant and this project. It's, um, you know, how can we empower, or actually, I don't even like that word, so I take that back. Retract. Um, you know, because I feel like, you know, youth have power, and it's not really up to us to empower them. But, you know, how do we provide pathways or opportunities for youth to uh, better understand, you know, the forces at work in their community and how that relates to, say, for instance, the, you know, 10th uh, grade world history curriculum that they're right. engaged with, or the 11th grade U.S. history that they're engaged with, or in California, the 9th grade California history um, curriculum that they're engaged with. How do we make that curriculum relevant, and, and how do we layer on top of that um, these uh, civic engagement opportunities that allow the, the youth to um, uh, interact with others in the community, and and I would say going back to your question, so I feel like I've circled around it, um, and this may be my own personal belief about this, but I think, yes, it is about having a collective, a sense of the collective, a sense of uh, what we are trying to do um, in a socially conscious kind of way. Uh, and when I say socially conscious, I mean, you know, with regard to like our society as a whole, 
versus what is true for me as an individual. And again, not that you know what you might want to do for yourself as an individual um, doesn't build into you know a more collective um, sort of effort, and, and and that could be what's true in the continuum. But ultimately, it is the the desire to connect individuals to um, to work together towards a common cause. And it sounds like I mean it, that there are elements of kind of the experiential learning crowd, that project-based learning is in here, right? A lot of focus on authentic learning experiences. Yes. Um, Challenge-based challenge learning, yes. those kind of pieces. Yes. Sound like they would all, not necessarily inherently, be part of civic education or see that as, as inherent to themselves. Right. But that they would all be good methods for getting kids to those to those places yes for sure I, I, I would say that that's um, you know that's that's very insightful on your part you know I think that um, all those pieces and and the, the kinds of pedagogies that I think you know we understand as being uh, you know more constructivist in nature you know would would uh, really fit in well with you know what what we're trying to see happen in, in Oakland and I would just add one other thing that that uh, the, the the piece that I've left out of this is uh, and, and primarily the reason why I'm involved is because this is, um, you know, civic engagement as, as we understand it today really involves in many cases um, digital media mm -hmm. and new media. And so I think that's a big piece of this and, and a part that I'm involved with. And so this is something that I think, you know, you asked the question, you know, what am I learning? I mean, so I, I feel like, you know, I'm on the Twitters. I know how that can operate in some ways for right. me personally. But what's interesting to me is to, to think about, so how do we, how do we um, scaffold opportunities and learning experiences for youth to begin to engage with these kinds of social media tools? Or you know, how can we provide, uh, I'm trying to remember who said this, but I, I believe over the course of this conference, someone said, some, because there are a lot of smart people saying a lot of smart things, right. but someone talked about you know, digital um, literacy as being uh, a, uh, a huge, uh, how do they phrase it? I mean, in some ways, almost it felt like, you know, this um, giving our youth digital literacy, in, in some ways, you know, we must do this. You know, okay. we must do this because they need to have access to that kind of um, dynamic so that they um, have, I, I think it was Ethan Zuckerman talked about, you know, having in some senses this like leverage of power, in other words, or um, this access to the. That, that, that kind of power that you know we know exists because you are digitally literate. And, and I think also keeping in mind what Dana Boyd said earlier today, this voice and power are not the same thing, yeah. right? And so, and helping students, everyone, helping everyone, and students of all levels understand that just because you have a Twitter account doesn't mean that you have power uh, in what's going on. I am teaching a social media course right now, and so I asked the students to um, do a tweet chat. Uh, just any of them. Sent them. The, like, here are the, all of the education-related tweet chats that have been collected, and, and participate in one. And so one of the students was already on Twitter, and said, you know, has had done a tweet chat before. Mm -hmm. And so to make it a better experience for herself, uh, one of her colleagues joined Twitter, and they participated together. Like, so they were synchronously, synchronously in the same space, um, participating in a. In a chat related to education and so then she was writing and reflecting about the experience and talked about how it kind of there was a leveling right so she had a little bit more power because she had been on Twitter for a while and so had more followers so she sent out a question then all of 
then she had more access to more minds and more eyeballs to get an answer or recommendations for resources, that mm -hmm, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And that her colleague, who had just joined, didn't have any kind of followers on, on Twitter, but that she noted that when they were in the tweet chat, because they had added the hashtag, there was a democratizing effect to their voice and the power that they had. Mm -hmm. and those, I'm adding the language of our conversation right yes, now. Yeah. But that was really interesting that, that even that in a digital forum, that thing had been created that was leveling, that, was, that, right. that gave equal weight and equal access to right. those voices. Right. Um, and so anybody who said, right now I'm going to pay attention to this hashtag, both the newcomer and the relative veteran, had, the, had the equal access of what was going on. Right. Now, I mean, that changes, like, if I was following her, oh, I know this person, and so there's some social capital involved there. But I think really interesting to think about how do we level that playing field and create experiences like that for students yeah. that we're working with. Yeah. Because you're coming in as somebody who knows like, the ins and outs of Twitter in right. a way that, that maybe they don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah, similarly, you know, I thought what was really fascinating in the plenary today was, um, is, uh, was Kathy Cohn, who was mm -hmm. talking about this, uh, you know, the, the new elite, essentially. Right. And uh, so I don't know if you remember this piece, but she was talking about um, getting a, or working with youth who, who got a petition up on change.org. Right. Yeah. Right. And then because there was, for, for whatever reason, you know, that particular petition made its way up the algorithm chain, you know, right. to be one that then could be featured and then generate that much more interest or activity. And, and another thing that actually I've been involved with that uh, is somewhat related that I think is really interesting is this idea of how do we, uh, and I think you actually tweeted this in a panel very smartly, it, it is, is this idea of agency. You know, how do we have agency in our online lives? Right. And, um, and one, of the, one of the other pieces of work that I've been engaged with is some of our partnership work with the Mozilla Foundation. So the Mozilla Foundation has uh, built a number of webmaker tools. Uh, it's at, they're at webmaker.org. You can check them out. Um, and those tools expose some of the building blocks of the web. So it allows us to have some agency around how we manipulate the web. And uh, it's interesting because just recently someone had published a post at the School Library Journal um, essentially saying that, you know, we don't need to know HTML. And I mean, I, I totally understand that position because we can create you know, many beautiful things online without knowing HTML. You right. know, there, there are many out-of-the-box kinds of possibilities. But I think what gets lost in this process where we're simply engaging in at change.org or, you know, uh, doing our searches on Google is that I think we've given up some sense of agency. You know, we've given up some sense that we have the ability to ourselves control, manipulate, uh, you know, develop our own... Um, sense of or our own pathway in these online spaces or we've allowed a filter to be in place right yeah. and I'm, not that we've given up because i'd say that change.org still gives you agency right or there's a channel for agency but you're allowing it to filter yeah and you're allowing it to say i'm going to do this and then i'm counting on you to see it as worthwhile right so that you will add it to a larger list yeah right and and what's also interesting there is we've still got a tool where a person is making that. It comes down to somebody saying, mm -hmm. this is worthwhile, mm -hmm. someone else. Right. Uh, and so in that, I would say helping students, helping of all ages. So I, like, when I say student, I mean like everybody, the 50 year old or the five yeah, year old. Exactly. Um, so in that moment, back to literacy, back to writing, 
persuasive arguments and, and knowing how to make a good argument mm -hmm. becomes incredibly key. Yeah. Like how do I how do I make this work and and, and, and how do I market this idea mm -hmm. in a way that, that makes a lot of sense. I, we were talking uh, well your session just mm -hmm. now mm -hmm. we were talking about stu students mm -hmm. creating things that are authentic mm -hmm. and sharing within the class and, and that it made a difference between the teachers who were speaking are like this makes a difference because it's not just me reading their work and so right. that changes things. And I think that's great. We're still dealing with a naturally built-in audience. Yes. And I wonder where we're falling down or standing up on helping students understand how do you curate an audience? Yes. Right? Like how do you how do you write something that gets people to read it? Right. Um, because I think there's still otherwise you're teaching them if you write something and put it online, it is inherently of value, and people will inherently want to read it. And I wonder if that's true. Right. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's absolutely not true. <laughs> but I think that's the message that we're often sending. And I think that's the message that like, we're often sending. You wrote a thing, put it online, people should read this. Yes. Because you wrote it. Yes. Yeah, you know, and I think that um, as well comes back to this um, civic engagement uh, question this issue of, of power in some ways uh, that the the matrix that Ethan Zuckerman put up you know we I, I, I think we have to help kids um, if we want them to be civic actors using these tools uh, leveraging these tools in the most effective ways understand uh, exactly what you're saying you know how do you how do you craft a thing a strategy or a piece of content that you know will um, will be picked up in some way. That that will be able to be um, replicated. That will actually gain some traction. Um, so understanding, right? It's savvy, savvy. exactly. And, and, yeah. Um, and quality. Yes. Right? And, the, and sometimes the system favors the savvy over the quality. Yes. And I, and I think that's that's inherent in a system. Yeah. Um, but the, um, I think when we talk about voice mm -hmm. and democratizing voice, mm -hmm. I think that we talk about volume mm -hmm. and your ability to raise the volume of your voice mm -hmm. versus nuance. Yeah. Like, can you say it louder? Yeah. Versus, can you say it better? Yeah. I think that's a great point. And I, I think these probably are all aspects of media literacy in some ways that, or new media literacy, that probably, um, you know, they're, they're, I mean, perhaps this framework exists. I've I've not seen it. Maybe you have, you know, in your, in your studies. But, you know, what is the new media literacy framework? And actually, that reminds me. So some of our other work, um, and you know, we were just talking earlier about Doug Belshaw. Mm -hmm. So Doug Belshaw, as you may or may not know, is uh, working with a number of people and a whole community actually to develop um, a web literacy framework. Mm -hmm. And so I think. You know, related to that web literacy framework, I think is, you know, perhaps like a new media literacy framework or a media literacy framework that really gets at some of these issues that you're describing. Um, you know, so how do we, yes, exactly, how do we craft, um, you know, a particular message that has depth um, and not just simply is about, you know, trying to reach the, the most followers, for instance, um, or, is or that becomes new? the most viral. I mean, we talk about new literacies because I think that's where we see the problem in the starkest relief now. Mm -hmm. 
is that not something that we saw in classroom, you know, in classrooms prior to these new media coming online? I mean, haven't we always needed to be as savvy at sending our message? Haven't we always needed to help kids make the more quality argument? Um, I mean, it, it, self-help books are yeah. a fantastic example, yeah. right? Like, um, I was brought up on the seven habits of highly effective people. Mm -hmm. That shocks very few people. Um, <laughs> But, but in that, like, Covey had savvy, and he had a well-reasoned argument, um, and, and, and agree with what he's writing or not, there's a piece there where there's depth and related, relatable uh, pathos, ethos, logos, all of those things are written in there. That was necessarily, he wrote that long before new media came on the scene. So are, do you see that as being a new framework, or do you see it yeah, as, like, I, I updating guess, a framework? I think I... I yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think I would have to think a little bit more about that. You know, I, I, I guess the thing that seems true to me is that simply because you craft, and, and perhaps this is always true. So, like, you could write schlock, and you know that could become popular. Right. But if you and, know, I mean, Twilight showed us that <laughs> exactly. And and you know, and and Twilight perhaps is a good example of something that was deliberately written uh, to be popular. Right. So, so perhaps it's not a new issue. I do think, though, that there are new strategies that are about what you know new media affords us. So, for instance, I think about a uh, an Ignite presentation that I saw um, Peter Kittle of the Northern California Writing Project deliver last year at DML, which was really interesting. In which essentially he um, he was making this argument that um, it's possible. Well, he was talking specifically about teaching. So, like, so his argument was that. Um, you could have a really good meme, but the meme could be about something that was untrue, mm -hmm. or potentially untrue. So in his case, he was saying that uh, the idea of, of bad teachers is a really good meme. You know, whether, right. whether bad teaching is, is actually true or not, um, because the images associated with bad teachers, uh, the media portrayals, you know, uh, I mean, I think he was referencing the, 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 the teacher from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Right. Bueller, Bueller, right? right? Ben Stein's best role. Exactly, really. Ben Stein's best role. I mean, that is an amazing meme. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, so it seems like this idea of memes and this idea of going viral um, with a meme, um, regardless of its truth, I mean, it's, it's about efficacy versus truth, uh, seems, if not new, at least powered up by by the immediacy of the web. Right, there's uh, a speed element. There's a speed there. element, like, yeah. They, all of a sudden we have to talk about an argument and in thinking about its quality, an element of its quality is also the speed with which it can be communicated. Yes, and, and in this in the case, for instance, of this like, you know, teachers are bad meme, it's like the argument isn't even really interrogated ultimately. Right. Like, like the speed, I wonder if the speed makes it impossible actually to truly interrogate the argument. Right. And so I think that that, I mean, I don't want to put words in Peter's mouth, but I will. Actually, I do want to, and do I'm it. gonna, I'm gonna say it. I'll even try and mimic Peter. Okay. Yeah. No, I won't. <laughs> but I, 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 do believe that, you know, I think what he would say is that, is that yes, you know, the, the, the speed at which uh, these memes proliferate do make it uh, relatively impossible to interrogate that argument, and so then I think. So perhaps, and I'm just thinking out loud, so perhaps the new media piece to this, or the new piece to this media literacy aspect is, how do we interrupt um, this, uh, 
rapid dissemination, this how do we interrupt the viral nature of, of memes or ideas that are not actually well ar argued right. um, or well constructed or are even true, actually? Or how can we prevent, like, so I'm, I'm thinking of sig signal de degradation, mm -hmm. like radio signal degradation. Yes. Like the farther you have to transmit, mm -hmm. the less clear, less clarity you have in, in your signal mm -hmm. at the end of the thing. But instead of distance, the degradation is caused by speed. Mm -hmm. The faster something spreads, the less clarity you're going to have when mm -hmm. you get there. It's yes. A kind of wacky game of telephone. Yes. So how do you construct something? How do you construct a message knowing that this is going to be the effect? Yes. And so like these are the all right. All of this gets peeled away. This thing that is still that is true will still come through clearly. Right. And do we have to start constructing things that way? Yeah. Right. Like not how do we keep everything together because I think trying to work against speed is the wrong argument to make. But how do we say, if it's going to speed through the, the internet, mm -hmm. um, or culture, or mm -hmm. society, whatever, mm -hmm. input noun here, um, how do we build it so that it is, um, there is a fidelity of message given the speed of transmission? Yeah, I, I think that's interesting. And actually, as you were talking, I, 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 I believe actually that, so, so I take back what I said. I think actually that what it's you're twice. It's twice. You're just. I know. I I, I um. I go back and forth. I, you know what? I give you full permission to change your mind. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I think because you're so persuasive. No, actually, because I think I think uh, that what you're describing is. Uh, so I think what I had said was that perhaps there is really this sort of newness to what we're seeing, but perhaps it's, it really is just a matter of scale. It's just that like. The internet allows these things to happen so much faster and so much more broadly, um, but in essence, it's not different. I mean, I think we probably have always needed to think about like the fidelity of message. Um, so, yeah. So I, I'll say that. All right. Well, I've won now. So <laughs> perfect. Yeah. But I do think that one thing that does seem very different to me is. Um, and I'd be curious to hear what you think. I, I think that this notion of, of our online identity is something that is new. I mean, obviously, we've always needed to preserve identity, but I, I go back to this question that I ask myself, um, which is, you know, could Bob Dylan have uh, created the persona that he did today? Like, could he have, could he have really lived his life as Bob Dylan, you know, who, I mean, he essentially created this identity for himself mm -hmm. as this singer, songwriter, folk singer with this name Bob Dylan, you know, and, and it wasn't until much later, I think, that, you know, his past as, as um, you know, someone from Minnesota who, like, grew up in this small town, like, that, 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 that all became apparent. And I, I feel like in some ways we have, uh, in, in the way in which we interact with one another online, we, we have lost some ability to control our own history and our own past in a way. And that feels different to me. It's interesting because it's a, a, a thing that I've been talking like a couple of times now. I've had a chance to talk, and this is what I talked about in um, at Educom this year, and then I got to talk about it again in uh, Boise, Idaho, mm -hmm. at, a, at a conference um, there. And it was how to, constructing our online persona. Yeah. Uh, and my argument would be kind of the contrary. You got to construct who you like. You made some choices today when you woke up. Like mm -hmm. I'm gonna wear my glasses. Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna wear contacts. I don't right. know if you, if you know we wear contacts. Yeah. Like 
Uh, you wore a button-down shirt. Yeah. I wore like a long sleeve crew neck with a t-shirt over it. Like right, I'm right. some sort of like Gen Xer. <laughs> um, but like we made those choices in the construction of our persona. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the message seems to be like, oh, we can only construct our persona online. Right? Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's true. I think we do it the exact same. I think that it's because all of a sudden we get like, oh, I could, I could be somebody different. Mm -hmm. Um, but if you think about who you are online right now, like who, the things that you put out on Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn or wherever, wherever you live online, if you tried to change that now, right? If you tried, if Paul O, keeping mm -hmm. the same mm -hmm. you, right? if you tried to all of a sudden be like a jerk mm -hmm. who's only critical of people, mm -hmm. doesn't support anybody, mm -hmm. and like all I write about are Pegasus and unicorns, right? Like, <laughs> People would not take that as authentic, right? You've established that persona hmm, in the same way. I think if anything, it'd be easier for Bob Dylan to do it, and he could do it like more quickly. And when he was really super young, and he could have been Bob Dylan for five years, we all would have been enamored with him. And then later on, oh, I'm going to be somebody else and just drop that persona away. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the Mayor Emanuel Twitter account out of Chicago, appropriately referenced, um, shows us that, right? Like. Do you know the mayor? No, I, no, so no. I, I don't know the story. When Rahm Emanuel was running for mayor, mm -hmm. um, there was a Twitter account, at Mayor Emanuel, um, which sadly Rahm Emanuel's camp had forgotten to reserve on Twitter. Um, and so it was in the middle of the night, and then all of a sudden, just because Emanuel is known for his you know, colorful language, um, it started out as just this Twitter account coming just new and interesting profanities related to the election. And then it started to very quickly sync up and got a lot of followers right away. It started to sync up with campaign events and meetings that the, that the real life mayor was having. And so it started to be this kind of parallel uh, narrative of the campaign and what was going on. And David Axelrod was a duck uh, <laughs> named Quaxelrod. Um, and uh, daily would every once in a while come in as this kind of godlike mythical figure and give him like crazy acid trip kind of advice <laughs> and had like, 40,000 followers and nobody knew who it was and every once in a while real people from DC who knew Emmanuel would, would see like get mentioned in the tweet and then would reply and like oh I can beat you at and then, but he would give it right back in the same way. Nobody knew who it was. Like this was a completely created persona, and it was a narrative. It was, and, and I talked about this when I was teaching. This was a narrative that was designed, and it was happening in real time, and it could only be read authentically this once. Hmm. And then it stopped. And it's this uh, blanking. Uh, maybe it's Dan. Uh, anyway, I'll look it up, um, and I'll mention it in the introduction to the podcast. Um, a punk uh, zine, like uh, new media teacher, uh, English teacher, uh, professor, had created this, and just as a whim, like would, he'd seen something, and this is how he did. I'm sure I'm bastardizing the story as I'm telling it, and then it died. Like that Twitter account is now not really doing anything at all. But for that point in time, that's who that person wants. Mm -hmm. Long answer to what was a very simple question is yeah I think Bob Dylan could be Bob Dylan now I think I could be Bob Dylan tomorrow mm -hmm. uh, and if I did it right in the same way that Bob Dylan had to though I'm sure he would say he wasn't be really thoughtful about the kind of persona that he was creating right 
you could do that online. Right. I, I, I guess my the, the so I believe that it's possible to to create a new persona. I think what is not possible is the ability to create a new persona in which your history is less clear. Um, which well, I that think, was the, the, nobody knew who Mayor Emanuel was. Yeah, interesting. Like, nobody like this was the question and. The Emanuel campaign offered a $5,000 contribution to the charity of the person's choice if they would come forward and explain who they were. Hmm. Nobody could figure it out. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So I think it is possible. Yeah. Um, and this is, so this, and I think, and I would argue this is the new genre, right? These kinds of stories are new pages that we have not thought about how we could write fictional narratives on. Right. Um, like, what... Like, I would love to see it play out like five characters on Facebook and an ongoing narrative yeah. and one author yeah. just deciding these are my five, you can friend them if they want to, they'll accept all comers right. and you just watch what happens on the wall. That's fantastic. And play the algorithm because like, the newsfeed doesn't put everything on your wall. So you'd have to think about how you construct that story that would happen, again, limited by time. This can happen once. You can go back and reread it, but it's not the same as like a choose-your-own-adventure book happening in real time based on these full and colorful characters. Right. So do you see this as a, a, a new fiction Yeah. possibility? Yeah. Um, and we see like uh, a huge West Wing fan, right? Almost all West Wing characters mm -hmm. have Twitter accounts. Mm -hmm. Like I follow President Bartlett on Twitter. Hey. And President Bartlett is offering commentary on President Obama. Right. On Twitter. And for whatever reason, that I am able to connect to, like, yeah. oh, of course, this yeah. is the same character doing yeah. these things. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. I, you know, and I totally understand that and, 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 and see that kind of transmediated sort of uh, interaction with, uh, with, you know, fictional characters. As, as making a lot of sense and actually being part of a, a long tradition that um, in some ways is related to um, you know, fan fiction, this idea of, of, um, of, of really uh, engaging with characters from fiction in ways that you know, some people might think is a little bit crazy, right. but uh, yeah, but, but is, is really fascinating. I think the thing that to me is, um, is interesting about uh, ideas of fan fiction is so. First of all, you know how do we help? How do we help our youth um, understand these genres and then be creators of these genres um, or creators in these genres? Mm -hmm. And then secondly, I think uh, going back to this civic engagement piece. So, like, what is the relevance to um, you know of what you're describing? To, for instance. You know our participation in this, you know, this democracy in which we live. And does it have to have a relevance? Yeah, right? maybe. Like, Perhaps not. I, I can be a political activist, and I can be an artist, and I can be those things together, and I can be those things separately. And I know activism and civic engagement are not necessarily the same mm -hmm. thing. But, but couldn't I just create art? Yeah, you know, and and maybe there's a through line there, and maybe that's how I get access to students' passions on those pieces. Mm -hmm. I would also turn the question around and say, what can the kids? I had students who were creating fan fiction long before I understood what fan fiction was, mm -hmm. and I learned about it through them. Mm -hmm. How can we position students so that they have increased 
if you're talking about empowering, and I think what we really need to talk about is how we prevent ourselves from disempowering. Right. And, and, and so how do we pull back some of that control so that students can then teach teachers right. about fan fiction? Yeah. Um, because I would, I would imagine that most classrooms have one kid in them who is engaging in writing fan fiction. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great question, and I, I think some of the things that I've uh, been able to see uh, over time through our work as our being the National Writing Project work with the D Digital Media and Learning Initiative is, um, you know, powerful spaces like uh, the U Media Center at the Harold Washington Library, where I think not only are, are youth being given opportunities to, um, you know, to engage in, in creation and making through media, but I mean, I think they essentially are also the ones who are mentoring other youth as well as adults, you know, in those spaces. So how do we make that possible? I, I think I think the general question or a, a big question for me is, you know, so what what is the role of, of a, an educator? What is the role of a teacher, um, you know, in the, the kind of classroom in which, you know, youth are also the teachers? And, you know, I, I ask that not because I think, um, not because I think that teachers don't have a role, but more because I think uh, I would like to be able to say to teachers, uh, you know, in this kind of environment, in this environment in which, you know, youth are, are uh, being mentors as well as um, learners, uh, where you yourself as a, an adult are also being a learner, um, like, don't be afraid. You know, it actually can work and it can feel good. And so, how do we help teachers understand that? What do you, what, what's your answer? Well, I think my answer is that, um, I, I mean, to me it's, it's a complicated question, or a complicated answer in that I think systemically there needs to be a change. You know, there needs to be um, opportunities for teachers to be able to see themselves as um, experimenting and failing, uh, you know, without there being, you know, high risk. So it's, it's less about, you know, an individual teacher and what the answer is for that person. Like, mm -hmm. you have to change your personality in this way. It's almost like, what are the systemic opportunities that we provide for teachers to, you know, engage in these kinds of practices that, you know, in the current climate are risky? Yeah. Uh, that opening it up and, and creating space for, for experimentation, I think, is, is a key. My, my usual answer, which I'm working on changing, is show them success. Mm -hmm. Show them where this is successful. And I would add the level of detail of mm -hmm. show them that something that is similar to what they know mm -hmm. that is being successful. Mm -hmm. um, because if it is not an environment that they recognize as being enough aligned with the one that they're working in, mm -hmm. They will reject it as, or, or could reject it as, well, that doesn't look like, that's not where I teach. Like, yeah. Here are the five things that they have that I don't have. Yeah. And so this is why I, say I couldn't be that kind of success. Right. When I would argue, yes, you could, you have to, for greater acceptance from, the, I think, the most resistant people, you have to say, where is this, where, what model of success can I show that looks like it's taking place in some, in a location that is as similar as possible to the to my audience right and I think that that becomes incredibly yeah because for those who are risk averse and teachers are risk averse both by nature and I think by fiat um, I need to see something that's successful before I can before I can embrace it yeah 
and that that makes sense to me, right? Like I, I do not deny them that feeling of fear, um, given the current policy climate and given the expectations and given the the meme of the bad teacher, right? Mm -hmm. Like I don't need to do anything that could look like it is supporting the truth of that meme, mm -hmm. and I think that becomes incredibly key. Yeah, yeah, and I think. Um, so just bringing this back to the Oakland work as well, I think that has also been, in some senses, one of my personal challenges is to be able to point to the kinds of um, successes in the way that you're describing that Oakland teachers can be able to embrace, you know, because I think, you know, I, I don't know what this was like in Philadelphia for you, but in Oakland, I think that there's such a sense of, um, among some teachers at least, um, and, and let me just say that actually, kudos to the teachers in Oakland who, despite um, you know all kinds of uh, obstacles, you know really do I think have a disposition towards uh, want, wanting their youth to um, engage civically, engage politically, um, you know to to have uh, critical knowledge. Um, so in spite of all that, I think there is also a, a mentality of. Yes. How is that going to work here in Oakland? Right. You know, um, like the infrastructure Practical, issues. Uh, pragmatism. Pragma pragmatism, exactly. So, so I definitely see that as well. You know, so how can we, how can we spin up these successful examples that that would make it possible for people to see themselves as um, to see themselves in those examples, and then be able to envision success in a way. So, um, another piece you don't know about the podcast is that when it's usually a cup of coffee long, mm -hmm. and we have chosen uh, a lovely fixed gear, fixed gear American red ale um, from right here in, uh, oh no, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. This is not a local beer. Oh, I thought for sure it was. It looks like it, doesn't it? Lakefront. Yeah. But the lakes, there are many lakes in this part That's of the country. That's true, exactly. We're all about the lakes. Uh, so, but the, traditionally, when the drink is done, that is when we end the podcast. Um, so we were there, but I would say this, where can people find you on the internet? People can find me on the interwebs at... I'm sorry, I'm that, not with the technical terms. That is okay, at, um, at P-O-H on Twitter. Mm -hmm. um, you can also read my blog if you're so inclined, uh, which is the letter D, the word composing.com, decomposing.com. Uh, and uh, you can also always email me if you'd like. I don't know if it's okay to give my email address. It's, it's, my mom is listening, so. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah. POH at NWP.org is my work email. And uh, yes, love to hear from people. Also, is there a spot online where we can follow the work that's going on in Oakland? Is that going to be on your blog? Uh, yes. Yeah. Actually, um, you know, that work is not, uh, it's, it's a little bit distributed at the moment. Okay. But probably ultimately that work will be visible at um, Digital Is, um, a National Writing Project website that is funded by the MacArthur Foundation, or has been funded by the MacArthur Foundation. Uh, and that URL is Digital Is, sometimes mistaken for Digitalis. Unfortunately Unfortunately, so. yes. It will stop your heart in its uh, amazingness. Digitalis.nwp.org. Awesome. Excellent. Thank you, Paulo. Thank you. Thank you, Zach. Thank you for listening to Learning Grounds. I'm Zach Chase. Our intro and outro music comes from New Dance Boys' Mission, and it's called Intro. It's licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. Learning Grounds is also licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. I dare you to say it three times fast. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.